you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And this morning we're going to read from Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 to 14. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones, the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nations took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Good morning. My name is Mike. Uh, It's my joy to serve as one of the pastors here. Let me just get things set up. If you're listening at home, 
Um, we on? Good. Um, hey, good day. Um, sorry about seeing my voice, about my face like 10 meters high in that kind of slightly low budget video, but I'm really excited uh, for God on Tap. I'm uh, really excited for it. It's going to be a great, great time. Uh, there'll be more info. We have a video from Dan next week, which will be a bit, bit sharper. Um, but uh, now keen for that um, because God is on mission and He's working through the hearts of people. I just, I just spoke to someone who's just become a Christian yesterday. I'm not going to embarrass them, but God is working through the hearts of people uh, at our church, which I'm really encouraged by. Hey, I'm going to pray because uh, we believe God speaks to us through His Word uh, and God has something for us. Uh, today. Challenging passage, but let's ask for God's help. Uh, and I'm going to include in it a traditional Anglican prayer uh, that comes from the fourth Sunday of Lent, which is today. So join with me as I pray. Blessed are you, God of compassion and mercy. To you be praise and glory forever. In the darkness of our sin, your light breaks forth like the dawn, and your healing springs up for deliverance. As we rejoice in the gift of your saving help, sustain us with your bountiful spirit and open up our lips to sing your praise. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Speak through your word this morning. Speak through me and change our hearts to make us more like Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this week, a significant event happened in Australia's history. AUKUS submarine deal was announced. Uh, an agreement between USA, UK, and Australia that uh, is embarking, as one writer described it, this is the most significant, expensive, and geopolitically consequential military tasks in a century. The push to acquire, operate, and eventually build nuclear-powered submarines. It's been a bit controversial, though, uh, particularly because it's going to cost... Taxpayers, taxpayers, Aussie taxpayers, potentially upwards of $300 billion. It comes as a response uh, for the Australian government that requires submarines capable from operating far from home bases, both as a deterrent and for attack capability in the event of a crisis. Now, regardless of, of what you think of this, it rightly or wrongly reflects uh, a growing sentiment that on our shores perceived that we are potentially under threat. We could be moving into a time of war. Now, I know some of you have grown up in contexts where bloodshed was more common. Uh, the presence of military was not uncommon in the streets, maybe as a sign of comfort or crisis. And my grandma actually grew up in northern China, and she recounts one story where Japanese soldiers invaded the house she was in with rifles. She screamed, ran out of the house, fell over, cut her knee, only to be rescued by a Mongolian woman on horseback. There you go. Now, we may not all have the Mongolian woman on horseback moment in your life, um, but war has been and still is prevalent all around the world, the 20th century. It saw more than 200 million violent deaths. People die in war more than the previous 19 centuries combined. And even this century, the 21st century, we've seen significant, devastating bloodshed in countries such as Congo, Syria, Sudan, Iraq, Afghanistan, Nigeria, Yemen, and of course, Ukraine. However, I suspect that for a majority of us, uh, the concept of war uh, it was somewhat removed from. Most of us here grew up in countries that are relatively peaceful, stability. Now, that's a good thing. We should praise and thank God for that. But what that does mean for many of us is that as we enter into passages and even books such as Joshua, 
Uh, we'll see they're filled with bloodshed, violence, warfare. We so often can view these things through our own cultural spectacles. Our upbringing, our family, our friends, our work, even our church context, they all shape the way we view the world. When we read about passages, such as we're looking at Joshua 10 to 12 this morning, at best they can seem a bit distant, like a Netflix or Hollywood drama. You know, interesting, entertaining even, but a little bit removed, not applicable to us. Or at worst, uh, these passages can be confronting, causing us to even question, why is this in the Bible? Is God really good? Famous atheist Richard Dawkins, in his bestseller, The God Delusion, he wrote this, that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I don't even know what half those words means, but it's a pretty scathing critique of the God of the Bible. Now, some of you this morning might agree with some of that. Each week, I love that every week we have people uh, that come and even journey with us who are not yet believers, who are are exploring faith, exploring Christianity. Maybe some of you this morning have been dragged by a friend. Uh, You're so welcome here. We love that you're here today. This might be and will be a real live issue for you. Now, other of us who here are Christians, many of us here, followers of Jesus, we, we wrestle with this as well. Uh, partly because this is what our culture, our friends, family, colleagues, neighbors, those we interact with online, are uh, believing. A few years ago, Australian research company McCrindle did a survey on faith and belief in Australia. And they found that for nearly two-thirds of Aussies, this issue of religious violence was a significant blocker to engaging with Christianity. Two-thirds. It was very high up there on the list. It was a bigger issue than Christians being judgmental or exclusive. If God really is good, if God is love, how can there be passages as confronting as this? One way of of resolving, it's easy to to ignore the hard bits of the Bible, you know, focus on verses that, that make us feel comfortable, that are easier to understand. Perhaps we don't really, we don't want to admit that, but we, we ignore or pay lip service to passages that we don't like. We sort of we might read them you know, in our kind of daily Bible reading plans, but we sort of just skim over them quickly and don't really feel the force and the weight of what God is trying to say through them. There's a real danger that if we believe, as the church has historically believed, as City Hill believes, that the Bible is God's word, then it's all God's word. And if we ignore parts of it, we are ignoring Him. The Bible is far more than a story on on a book about how to live or some wise, pithy sayings, inspiring stories. It's the Word of God. It's how God has and continues to speak to us. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture, all the Bible is God, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's all useful for us, partly and largely because it's revealing who God is. Tim Keller, he says that if your God never disagrees with you, 
You might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. By ignoring certain parts of the Bible, we can slip into what's known as comfortable Christianity, which isn't really Christianity at all. So let's have a look at what God's Word has to say for us this morning. And here's the big thing. This is all we take away from this morning. Take away this, that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We're going to look at what happens in this battle. We're going to look, spend a few minutes talking about violence in the Old Testament and spiritual warfare for us. That's where we're heading. So firstly, what happens? Well, important that as we look at any Old Testament narrative, uh, Joshua in particular, just understand what's happening. And I'll admit, uh, these chapters 10 to 12 this morning are a little bit confusing. That There's lots of detail. Uh, it can, you can easily get lost. If you, open up to, if you have a Bible, please open it up now to, to Joshua chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, I uh, would love to, to give you one and help you read it. We just ordered some more this week, so I would love to help you take that next step. But if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll remember that Joshua, remember he succeeds Moses. Uh, he's leading God's people. They're, they're con- they've conquested into the promised land. They've captured now the city of Jericho. Joshua's commissioned by God as this spiritual and military leader of Israel. You know, things have been up and down, though. Jericho was a success, but AI, well, a bit up and down, a bit of a failure. And last week, um, remember, um, we, we saw these Gibeonites, these guys that tricked Israel, kind of didn't really tell the truth. That They said that they were from a faraway place, kind of brought some crusty bread and empty wineskins and kind of said, hey, we've come a long way. Uh, then Israel fell for that, and they made a peace treaty, something which perhaps they'll regret as we see um, what happens this morning. Sort of like, you know, buying a car. What the Gibeonites have done is it's sort of like they bought car insurance after they'd had the accident. You know, they knew they were in trouble, uh, but they make this deal. They want to cash on it straight away. We'll see this. Let's have a look again at chapter 10 as Mark read for us. Chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai as its king had done to Jericho and its king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, because it was greater than Ai, and the men were like warriors. So we meet this king. He's got a title. Now, that's not his real name, Adonai Zedek, which literally literally, uh, means Lord of Righteousness. And he's the king of Jerusalem. It's the first time Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible, but really this is kind of this ironic title, uh, almost like a, you know, a future antichrist, kind of someone who's opposing the later king of, of Jerusalem. But, but what happens? Um, the king, he hears about how this city of Ai had been destroyed by Joshua, and he also heard about the deal that the Gibeonites had made. And so he's like, all right, we've got to be proactive. We've got to destroy the Gibeonites. And so he teams up with four other kings, of looking after local city-states, and they wage war against Gibeon. Now, the Gibeons, what do they do? They, they cash in their check. They cry out to Joshua uh, as these five armies have fought um, to fight against them. Uh, then in verse 8, we see this remarkable claim from God. He says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Notice the, the tense. I have, past tense, I've already defeated them. This hasn't happened yet, if we're looking at it chronologically. But God, who sits outside of time and space, who's in control, who's sovereign, 
He's like, I've already done it. I've already beaten these guys. You don't need to fear. And so what happens? Joshua, he, he marches up the hill at night. It's maybe like a six-hour journey. And you know, this great leader, Joshua, is ready to fight, but it's actually God. He's the one who's doing the fighting. If you keep reading down in verse 10, the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent to Beth Haron and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. In verse 11, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven as far as Azekah and they died. And there were more that died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel who were killed by the sword. So it wasn't obvious that it was God that was fighting the battle. Literally, more people died from hail than from the sword. God, He is the one fighting. He's completely in control of the situation. He throws the kings and panic uh, into a panic and sends down these hail. These five kingdoms, they're defeated. Then afterwards, Joshua prays this bizarre prayer. Sun, stand still at Gibeon, verse 12, and moon in the valley of, of Ajalon. He asked for the sun and moon to stand still. All the things you could ask. Sun, moon, stand still. What's, what's up with that? And even more bizarre, God actually grants that request. Now, did this really happen? My grandpa, uh, who died recently, he, uh, he threw this out as, a, as an objection to why he doesn't believe in the Bible. He's a scientific guy, he's a doctor for 50 years, and he says this violates scientific and natural laws, like, you know, God can't do this. But the notion of, of God, it's one who's bigger than science. And not that Christians are anti-science, but the message of the Bible, of Christianity, is actually God made the universe. He says, I said before, he sits outside of time and space, and he offers hope beyond this life. If there really is an all-powerful God, if there is a God who is able to raise His Son Jesus back to life, then why can't He make the sun stop? Why can't He slow it down? Well, what happens? Well, I keep reading in verse 13. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this, not, is this not written about in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua, he, he prays for something big and incredible that's never happened before or since. Um, and it's recorded elsewhere, this book of Jashar, uh, which uh, scholars debate about what it is. It's probably been lost, though. Some have tried to recreate it. But it's a big deal, right? It's written elsewhere. Now, some people think this is simply like an eclipse. Uh, you know, the, the moon's kind of blocking out the sun. That's kind of what's happened. Or some others think that, well, maybe because of the hailstones, uh, there was this storm, so it was a cloud, so it sort of looked like the sun had stopped it. But I take it that the writer here is pointing us that this is a big deal, right? This is more than just an ordinary weather event. I think there's two possibilities from the text that either the sun was delayed in setting or in rising. Remember, Joshua had come up through dawn, and so maybe God had delayed the sun to rise. It was still dark, and from a military perspective, it makes sense to kind of fight when it's dark. You can do a surprise attack, that sort of thing. 
Or maybe the day was prolonged so that Joshua could win the battle. Uh, and we see that in, in verse 13, um, that it's important that, that it was until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Either way, the point is that Joshua's prayer was answered by a powerful God, and it was the Lord who fought the battle. And, and this reminds us of the judgment of God. Uh, we should uh, be looking back and remind us of the, the, the ninth plague. Remember Moses, uh, before he fled Egypt, uh, there were the plagues to, to Pharaoh. He was that confrontation between God, Yahweh, and Pharaoh. And the, the, the ninth plague, before the firstborn killing, the ninth plague was darkness. Uh, darkness, uh, pointing to, before this act of judgment where the angel of death would come, killing the firstborn of Egypt. But also this moment, it points us forward uh, to a future moment of darkness. On the night where Jesus died on the cross, or the morning of where Jesus died on the cross, but actually became night. It was about the sixth hour. This is in Luke chapter 23, verse 44. Luke says this, It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, on the cross, darkness symbolized God's judgment, separation from God that Jesus was taking. The innocent Jesus, he committed himself into the Father's hands. He copped more than just a physical death, a painful physical death. In fact, the word excruciating literally means out of the cross. It was a painful death, but it was more than that. He entered into the spiritual battle and fought for you and I. He was devoted to being destroyed so that you and I could be delivered from death. Now back in Joshua, after this spectacular weather event, uh, we get back to some brutality. We see in Joshua 10, these five kings, these, um, these leaders, kind of opposing God, they, they flee to a cave. And Joshua says to, the, to his men, to his generals, I want you to step on their necks. And they go, they get hung, killed, and hung on five trees for a day outside the cave. Then what happens? The Israelite men, they capture the cities in the south of Canaan, Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. And verse 40 summarizes what happens in this chapter. So Joshua struck the whole land and hill country in the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord of Israel had commanded. Now Joshua, he captured these kings, their land at one time, because it was actually the Lord who had fought for Israel. Now you can see this in verse 42. Joshua captured all these kings because at one time the Lord had fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. The Lord, he's the one fighting the battle. Chapter 11, uh, they're faced with some armies in the north this time. Uh, similarly, they, they unite together and their troops are overwhelming Israel. I'm just going to kind of move through this next two chapters pretty quickly, but they're described like grains of sand. They're way outnumbered. God says, Do not be afraid of them, 11 verse 6, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel, and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And so, verse 8, that's what happens. The Lord gave them into the hands of Israel. They keep gaining territory because the Lord God is in control. 
Chapter 12, it continues. This time they go east and a bunch of kings team up against Israel and God gives them the battle. It says that Moses was the one that defeated them, which is a little odd because Moses had died by this time. But I take it it was um, the, the fact that the writer's trying to help us see that actually under Moses, God promised to, to get this land. And so um, they're trying to show us how the succession plan is continuing. Uh, the promises given to Deuteronomy are being fulfilled. And they complete the compass, kind of north, south, east, west. And Canaan is defeated. And that's sort of where we get up to at the end of chapter 12. Israel have effectively conquered the guts of the promised land. The kings from each city, and we, we read this in 12, the end of chapter 12, that 31, 31 kings of these city-states were killed and devoted to destruction. The land that was promised hundreds of years ago to Abraham, the land of milk and honey, was finally given to God's people. So what do we learn about God? Well, a big thing is that God, He's a fighter. Now, this is something that perhaps doesn't sit easy with our culture. You know, it's far more comfortable uh, to think of God as just love, as merciful, as kind, maybe even in control. But God is a fighter. Uh, That might not come as easy to us. We want to be as proud to kind of post that up on our Instagram story. But this is, this is all throughout the Bible. Right? In fact, the song that Moses sings back in Exodus 15, uh, verse 3, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we met this mysterious man, the commander of the Lord's army. Perhaps that was an incarnation of God himself. God is described over 200 times as the Lord of hosts. The, inca- the, the leader of the heavenly army of angels. And God continues to fight all throughout Israel's history, whether it be Gideon, remember in Judges, with just 300 men fighting this massive army against the Midianites, whether it's David, remember him with his little slingshot up against this huge giant Goliath, whether it be Judah fighting the Ethiopian army of more than a million people, whether it's Elijah slaying the 450 prophets of Baal. It could go on and on and on. God continues to fight the battle for His people. But the fighting doesn't stop in the Old Testament. God continues to fight for His people. In Jesus, we see a warrior. Look at, listen to how Jesus is described in Revelation 19. This is what Jesus will come. He'll come to rule, to return, and to judge the nations and to fight. Verse 11 of Revelation, this is how John, one of Jesus' best mates, describes his picture of Jesus. I saw heaven open, and, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies in heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of his fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, has this, he has this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. Our God is a fighter. The battle is the Lord's. And Jesus has won the war. 
Now, this book, back in Joshua, right? This book's called Joshua. But on one level, that, that's a bit of an unhelpful name because it sort of makes us think that Joshua is the hero of the story. Far from the truth. It's God. God is the fighter. God is the one who is winning the battles. And you know, back in Jericho, it wasn't the horns, it wasn't the shouting, uh, it wasn't uh, the kind of marching around the walls that kind of made Jericho crumble. It was God. The people were outnumbered, outflanked. They made bad allies. They were even scared at times. It was God who keeps winning the battle for his people. God gives Joshua the command, but God, and God gave Joshua the victory. Church, for us, this is good news. God continues to fight for us. In Romans 8, Paul says that if God is for us, then who can be against us? And God has ultimately fought for us in Jesus. He's paid our debt. And 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. What an awful enemy. You know, something that we all have to face. Something that profoundly affects and confronts us all. Uh, I mentioned before my, my grandpa who lived a pretty good life, 93 years. He had six children, uh, 14 grandchildren and like there's 12 great-grandchildren so far. He was a doctor for over 50 years. He probably read over a thousand books, uh, read the Bible many times. And now uh, he, was, he, was, he died last year. Now he's just a bunch of ashes scattered across Mount Gravatt crematorium. The condition of humanity that we are all facing is this terminal illness, terminal illness of death. But Jesus, he died so that we can defeat death. Friends, if we trust in Jesus, this enemy has already been defeated. We don't need to fear death. This is huge. Remember, I was chatting with one of you last year, and uh, you, you, were, you had some surgery, and you were actually hoping the doctors would botch the surgery so that you would die, so you could be with the Lord. I've been praying for that. <laughs> what a countercultural, bizarre thing. But it's true, right? If, if heaven is real, if God is good, then to be with Him in heaven forever, that's going to be better than what this life has to offer. Do you believe that? Now, what do we make of God's character? This issue of violence. Now, there's heaps more to be said about this. I'm just going to spend five minutes or so just trying to engage, help us understand some things. Uh, I'm going to use it with using a reference from which I think is arguably the best political drama of all time, West Wing. Uh, anyone seen West Wing? Yeah, a few of you, yeah, there you go. Those who've seen it, they know it's good. Um, but anyway, there's this scene, right? This bizarre scene where uh, President Jeb Bartlett and, and his kind of uh, opponent, Republican Senator Vinnick, they're eating ice cream in the basement of the White House. Um, and Vinnick, um, the Republican, he's, he's not a believer, and he says, I couldn't believe that there was a God who said the penalty for adultery was death. And he kind of goes on and talks about some other things the Old Testament says. I can't believe that, right? Now, Bartlett says something which I think uh, is, is common for our, our, our kind of comfortable Christian culture. He says this, he says, I'm more of a New Testament man myself. More of a New Testament man myself. Now, sometimes we kind of pit the, the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God and say, well, look, that was the old time. You know, like since Jesus, things have changed and you sort of don't really have to kind of take on all that stuff. You know, God's different. 
but actually it's the same God. You can't separate the Old and New Testament. God is a fighter, continues to be a fighter. We've seen that in confronting passages in the New Testament, like Revelation 19. God cares deeply about right and wrong and justice. He will destroy his enemies with a sword. Now, absolutely, you have to read the Bible in context. Um, but it's, it's an unfolding story centered around Jesus. But God's character, it doesn't change. Now, the other, the other thing, uh, next thing to kind of think about is the prescriptive versus descriptive. Uh, what do I mean by that? You know, what, what's prescribed versus what is described? Uh, again, it's an issue of context. Um, now, the go-home application for us today after reading Joshua isn't, who are the Canaanites in your life? Go and slay them. I don't know why that's American, but there you go. Um, that's not the application. You know? That's not the application for us today, right? We need to read this in light of context. This was written to, this was history, right? This was a particular moment in history. And sadly, though, Christians have taken passages like these, apply them to their context instead of reading them in light of God's story. And the famous, most famous example, of course, the Crusades, where Hundreds of thousands of people were butchered on the, the quest to kind of recapture, reclaim the physical Israel. Now, the Bible, it's, it's more than just a manual for life, more than just kind of go home and do likewise. We need to read this in light of the bigger story. Uh, next thing to, to consider, uh, the, these brutal passages we encounter in, in Joshua, it's not talking about complete annihilation. Now, when you first um, read this and you're like, wow, entire cities were destroyed, the lens perhaps we're thinking, that the the kind of the the villain that comes to mind um, perhaps is Hitler, you know, the gas chambers, Stalin, someone like that. It's not ethnic cleansing. There's a couple of reasons for this. Well, firstly, the cities um, that that are described here, they're not like Brisbane, right? Think of it more a bit like Anogra barracks. There were were military outposts, not places where like schools and hospitals, orphanages, things like that. It wasn't this kind of systematic killing at this point. And secondly, it can't be entire races that were destroyed. The Canaanites weren't wiped out. Otherwise, why would God command his people, don't marry the Canaanites? They're still there. Don't need to marry. Next thing to consider is they aren't innocent victims. You know, way back in Genesis chapter 15, when God first promised to Abraham the land that I'll give you, he says, I'm not going to give it to you just yet. Uh, why is that? Well, uh, it says that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. You know, God knew there would be more rebellion from people living in the promised land. And so he patiently waits for people to repent. We've sort of seen that over, over Joshua. Uh, we've seen that, that, that people have heard stories about God's judgment uh, and they've given, they've given um, time to repent. Some even have responded and wanted to join God's team. God is patiently waiting. Still the same God. In 2 Peter 3, 9, uh, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patiently waiting towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants you to come back to Him. God is waiting. He's giving an opportunity for your friends, your family uh, to be saved. God's patient. These guys living in Canaan, they they aren't innocent. Um, Here we see kings. They're the one actually instigating the fighting. 
in this passage. That they plot up against, against Gibeon and they want to destroy Gibeon and the collateral damage, of course, Israel and Joshua. We can read about how they had this God called Molech and they would even sacrifice children to this God. This isn't kind of a bunch of upstanding citizens. And yet, we look at this and sometimes it's easy to, to point the finger at them and think, well, we're, we're morally superior to them, but we aren't innocent either. See, God, He's holy. God has higher standards than us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we, we fail to keep our own standards, let alone God's perfect, pure ones. The only one who ever was innocent was Jesus. Like Joshua, we are in a spiritual battle, and we have a very real enemy who is strong and powerful. However, unlike Joshua, our battle is not physical. It's spiritual. Our fight as Christians is not against the Canaanites. It's not about a physical Israel. It's not about trying to establish a Christian nation in Australia or re-establish it or whatever. You know, it can be tempting to, as the culture wars play out, um, online in particular, to, to enter in to these battles and think that's the main thing. You know, around the definition of marriage or abortion or religious freedom, euthanasia, rights to the marginalized, caring for the poor, gambling, legalization of drugs, prostitution, etc., etc. Now, these are important issues. Don't get me wrong, but um, if we say that this is the main battle to be won, then we're delusional. This is more. This is far, far less than what God is on about. You know, these are important things, but this is the wrong perspective to be looking at. We're not at war. We're not at war with our ideological opponents. We're not at war with our ideological opponents. We're at war for them. We're at war for them. Now, the Bible has a shocking word for those who are morally, politically, culturally, ideologically opposed to us. Do you know what that word is for those that are opposed to us? Our neighbors. (laughs) Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Author Cap Stewart, he says that to engage with our culture in a malicious and hostile manner is to forsake our role as ambassadors. It's trading our diplomatic visas for military dog tags. It's trading the armor of God for the fig leaves of human striving. It's, it's a capitulation to earthly wisdom attempting to fight for the kingdom of God on the world's terms. Church, our horizons, our hope are so much greater. Our hope is is not for a Christian version of Brisbane. We're waiting on a better Canaan, a better Jericho, a better Jerusalem. We're waiting for the new heavenly city with Jesus. But church, we are in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle. Some of you need to heed the words of Kevin Spacey and the usual suspect who said this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Church, the devil's real. He's got some tricks up his sleeve. We're in a real battle. We're fighting against him, against our flesh, against the world. But as we wrap up, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is the picture that Paul paints of this spiritual battle. You know, Paul ends his, his letter to this church that he loves so dearly uh, in Ephesus. He ends it with marching orders. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 6. He says this, verse 10, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, we're in a battle. Now, what powers does our enemy have? Well, the devil who will be destroyed, he really only has three weapons. Distraction, denouncing, and deception. Distraction. Well, he, he loves to take us away from the things of God. And I think one of the reasons why perhaps in the West, in Brisbane, you know, we don't see as many, maybe, crazy, kind of weird, dark, you know, miraculous things is because we've got social media, we've got Netflix, we've got a million reasons for us not to be here this morning. We don't, a million reasons for us to be staying up late, not reading our Bibles, not loving our families, not doing the things that God would want us to do. Distraction. It's a real weapon that Satan uses us to take us away from the things of God. Uh, secondly, denouncing or accusation. Uh, it's the idea that you know, Satan gets in your mind, well, Jesus didn't really pay for your sin. You know, it makes us feel guilty. Uh, that idea that maybe sometimes you have where you've, you've done something wrong, you sort of feel like you need to, to pay God back, that somehow you've kind of fallen out of favor. This is a deception, right? That, that God, you know, God actually says that, no, I paid all your sin. There's nothing you can do that to take, me out, take you out of your love. God loves us so much he sent Jesus to die for us. There's nothing, no bigger payment God could have made for our salvation. Denouncing. And thirdly, deception. Thinking, this is temptation. Thinking that, that the world's way is better. And this is, happens all the way from the start of Scripture, back in Genesis 3. You know, Satan twists God's word. Did God really say that? Look at Joshua. This is what your God's like and you want to worship him? Really, you want to go to church every Sunday? You want to give money? You want to give up your time? You want to belong to this kind of group of weird people? Like Satan kind of getting in your mind, in your heart, convincing you that the world is better. Distraction, denouncing, deception. Really, that's it. That's all he's got. Satan's still fighting a battle, but the war has been lost. God is with us and he's equipped us for this battle. How has he done that? Well, he's given us weapons. What are these weapons? As I invite the band up, let's look at these weapons from verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Church, stand firm. Stand firm in the truth of Jesus. Stand firm. Therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth. God's word is the way of truth. There's no one that can get to God except through Jesus. And having put on the, the breastplate of righteousness, the fact that Jesus has, has bought your heart, it's secure. Nothing can take you away. And shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Be ready for action. Be ready to take that message to the world. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. By faith. In what God has already done, not by our own strength. That's how we deflect uh, these things that the devil's throwing us. And take the helmet of salvation, the knowledge of the truth that we have been saved, and the sword, this is the only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Bible. You know, how, do we, how do we fight Satan? Well, we kind of quote Scripture back to him. That's what Jesus did. 
Uh, let, let's know this word. The sword of the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador for cha- uh, in chains, that I, I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Church, we're, we're in a battle. And when you go to work tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, whenever your work is, we're in a battle. Uh, when we work with people that aren't following Jesus, they oppose us, not because it's them, but because it's, they're, on their, they're not on God's team. They don't know God. They don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And God has given you all these gifts, all these, these weapons to stand firm and to fight. But the other thing that God has done is not call us to do it in isolation. Church, we are to do this together. It takes a village to raise a disciple. We are a city on a hill, not an island on a hill. We, we are together to be fighting, to be encouraging us to look to Jesus. J- Jesus, he's the new Joshua. It's the same word, Yeshua. He was slain for us that we can have life in this new promised land. Let's stand firm knowing that God is our fighter, fighting for us and fighting with us. Let's stand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that even when it's confronting, that you do speak to us. Lord, I pray that we as a church can wrestle with these truths, but knowing that in Jesus we can trust you, knowing that you did not spare your son, but you gave him for us so that we can have life. Lord, I pray that as we are a part of your battle, Lord, may you comfort us and remind us of the truth that you've already won the war, that Satan has been defeated and that we can have life to your name. Lord, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.